Good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. I'm Rowan. Uh, so great to see you as we come together around God's Word. I often say that, but I really mean it. it it's such an exciting thing to hear God speak, to hear what He has to say to us and, and what He's been doing throughout history. And, and tonight, we'll be looking at this part that, that Mariel just read for us, but the whole lot of really chapter 9 through to chapter 12. Uh, this next section of this book of Isaiah that really has lots to say to us about the way we think about ourselves and about the way we think about the world and what hope is. Uh, we'll be having a, a short amount of question time afterwards, so if you've got questions, there's a number on the screen, flick it through, uh, we can try and answer those and see where we get to. We'll be hitting a couple of touchy topics, so uh, maybe let us know. Why don't we pray and ask that God would help us in His Word tonight to understand Him. Let's pray. Lord, you know uh, what's been going on in each of our lives. You know that our minds have been in different places with the ups and downs of life and that for many of us, we've just made it here tonight. For others, we've come in bouncing and excited about you. We ask that tonight, you would take our thoughts and lives and through your word and by your spirit, you would show us who you are. That by your word this evening, as we as we've heard it read and as we think through what it means for us, you'd send us out into your world changed, having been addressed by the God of the universe. Thank you that you speak to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, psychologists tell us that, the, that there is a link between people who are hopeful and people who are healthy. There's a link between those who are hopeful and those who are healthy. A number of years ago, a psychologist by the name of Rick Snyder did an experiment on, on live TV. It was a pretty like, rigorous experiment. They did it on Good Morning America. Uh, so, uh, but what he did was he did this experiment to see how hopefulness affects your pain threshold in life. And, and he used what um, is kind of called a, a, a common tolerance, pain tolerance test. Um, it's called, I wrote it down, I can't see it, the cold presser test. And this is how they kind of work out how much pain someone can tolerate. What they do is, they get kind of three people and they want to see how, how much pain they can tolerate. So they get this massive fish tank of iced water. And then they get the three people lined up and they stick their right arms in the iced water. And basically, the person who leaves their hand in the longest wins. Right? And it shows they can tolerate the most amount of pain. But what he wanted to show was that he thought that um, someone's hopefulness could predict how much pain they could tolerate. So before the kind of thing went on Good Morning America and they used the three TV hosts, he did a, a test of each host using a, a common psychometric test of hopefulness and then saw people's answers and wrote down in an envelope the order he thought people would pull their hands out based on their hopefulness. So it's on live TV, it's been going throughout the show. You know, uh, one person pulled out quite early, like, I'm out. Uh, then the next person was there for a while, but then the last guy stood for ages with his hand in and then pulled it out. Then they opened the envelope and he was exactly right. And it kind of, hopefulness had been a predictor of how much pain we could tolerate. Hopefulness, friends, our idea of hoping for something, longing for something, has a huge impact on our health, both our physical health and our mental health. But the question is, does it matter what our hope is in? Psychologists would say probably not, as long as you're hoping for something that is going to get you through life, as long as you're hopeful, it doesn't matter what that hope is, it's going to have a positive impact on your life. But here's the thing. What happens when what you hope in doesn't deliver? Or worse still, what you hope in happens, but it doesn't give you the, the joy, the, the benefit that you thought it would. 
It's all very nice to have hope for a while, but when the things we hope for don't happen, we're left with a sense of hopelessness, meaninglessness. A number of years ago, um, it wasn't that long, uh, I stood beside the bed of my grandmother. Uh, she'd lived a wonderful life. Um, she kind of had money and opportunity and great family. I mean, look at me, I was like, this is great. You know, she'd lived an amazing life. Uh, she'd been in so many places uh, around kind of Australia, and she'd experienced things that I've never experienced. Uh, she was one of the most healthy people that I, that I ever knew. Um, she was just amazingly healthy. As I stood at her bedside as she approached her mid-90s, I asked her, Nan, what are you looking forward to? What's happening? It was kind of just a a throwaway comment. I I asked her, she's sitting there as I went to visit, and she paused, looked out the window, and then turned back to me and said, nothing, dear. I'm not looking forward to anything. And I was just struck with this sense of hopelessness, that the things that she had hoped in in her life, the things to bring her great joy, hadn't delivered, that here she was in the twilight years of her life, and she's still alive now, and my prayer is she does find hope, true hope. But after, after breaking her hip, she hadn't moved from a 20-meter radius in three years. And I just thought, wow, how important it is to put our hope in the right things. So often as we think about our hopes and dreams, we look inward to ourselves, we think, look, What do I want out of life? What do I hope for? What do I look forward to? And we look inward at ourselves to set those things up about what will make us happy. But the problem is when we place our hope in the things that are in us, in the intrinsic look, we find they don't deliver. As we open up the Bible, particularly as we go through this book of of Isaiah, We see that there's a perspective that God gives us, a a picture of of humanity, of of life and the universe that is bigger than us, bigger than our hopes and dreams. In fact, what we find is that our greatest sense of satisfaction and security and success comes not from looking inward at what we want, at our imagination, but from looking outside ourselves, seeing the the bigger picture that any of us could ever hope for or dream for and seeing our place in the colossal plan of the creator of the universe. And it's my hope tonight that as we, as we look through Isaiah, we'll see this picture. We'll see a view of life and ourselves from someone outside of us. You know how it's often better being outside a situation than in it? You know when you're in a situation and you don't really recognize what's going on around you? Have you ever had one of those moments where someone outside you has been able to see what's going on better than you can? Maybe not, I don't know. Uh, oh, Ben has, we'll chat to him about that later. <laughs> I can see it now, there's a line behind you. No, it's not, it's there. Um, so, so I had one of those uh, situations last year. I was um, overseas uh, in Israel and Greece doing uh, some study for a master's paper in the backgrounds of early Christianity. And um, I was there with a guy that trained me in Christian ministry. Uh, we'd flown from Israel to Athens, and we landed in Athens airport about 11.30 at night, and, and we we'd got a hire car, picked up the hire car, and we were driving to the center of Athens from the airport. Should have taken half an hour. Well, at 12.30, we're still trying to work out which motorway to get off. We're like driving along, I'm on the wrong side of the car, on the wrong side of the road. It kind of wasn't, wasn't great, it was a bit weird. Uh, Conan, my trainer, he's trying to work out where we're going, and he's using an iPad to navigate, but hadn't downloaded the maps properly. We're like, where are we? And all the road signs are in Greek, and we can both read a little bit of Koine Greek, and, but this modern Greek, we're like, 
we're just laughing at the road names and then be like, oh, we should have taken that one. And that's what it was like. Anyway, so we end up, and apparently Greece has got these big mountains. We end up up this twisty road. We're like, oh, this is cool. It doesn't feel like the center of Greece. But up we're going, and we get to the top of this kind of mountain, and there's this car parking lot with all like the, the romantic lovers, you know, the types. You know, they're looking out over the, the view over Greece, and they're all sitting there in their cars. And I'm like, this is not where we're supposed to be. <laughs> we kind of look at each other, do kind of a, a U-turn, and drive back out uh, onto this kind of divided road, which was one way, one way, and one way the other. We're driving along, just, just out of this car park, and I hear people yelling at us uh, from the car park at the top. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. They must recognize that we're tourists. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, just, I don't know what they're saying. It was Greek, right? I'm like, I don't know. And they're calling out, and then I just had this funny sense that I was on the wrong side of the road. And I was on divided road. <laughs> like, literally, we were driving onto a motorway, or about to. And I'm just like, ah! And that's why they were yelling. See, they had a view of that situation that was far better than mine. I was all happy driving along following the little blue line. But, but they're saying, danger is ahead. Thankfully, we heard them, quickly turned around, did another lap around the car park, and then went back on the correct side of the road. As we come to the letter of Isaiah, we get an outside view of humanity, of the world and of you and me, not from some other human's perspective, but from the one who sees humanity the most clearly, from the God who made you and me. And what we see, and we've been seeing as we work through this book of Isaiah, is the people who think everything's going fine. Their hopes and their dreams are the ones that they've set, and they're kind of, they think they can work out the way forward. They think they've got life under control, but in fact, they've hoped in the wrong things. And what lay ahead of them is future destruction. They are a people without hope. A people without hope. Point number two, if you're following along. Previously, Isaiah had been speaking uh, to uh, the, the southern kingdom of, of, of Israel, uh, to, to Judah. And there's a little map on the screen. Uh, the people down south. Uh, that, that's where he's kind of speaking to. Uh, and he was talking about the judgment that would come as God would um, send the Assyrians down through the top of Israel, the, the northern kingdom, Israel there, and, and kind of punish them for their rebellion. And chapter 9, verse 8 starts this way. The Lord sent a message against Jacob. It came against Israel. Now, as we get to this part, we're seeing that Isaiah is taking a step back and not just talking about that southern kingdom. But he's talking about Jacob, that is the one who was called Israel. He's saying the people of God. God sent a word, a message against the people of God. It came against Israel. It's not just the top. It's now widening out to all of Israel. They'd been living their lives for their own hopes and dreams, however wrong and self-centered. And so this is what God says. Chapter 9, verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them. God had said he was bringing punishment on them. They didn't turn to him. They did not seek the Lord of armies. So far, the book of Isaiah has been a commentary on the dark state of humanity. We'll see that on their own, these people of God are a people without hope. As God punished them, they didn't turn back. Listen to how Isaiah describes the people and its leaders. Uh, chapter 9, verse 17. For everyone is a godless evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. <laughs> Again, happy days. Uh, 10, verse 1. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial. 
and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. Do you see how far God's people have descended? They think they're going fine. They've got their own hopes and dreams to set up laws that, that kind of achieve goodness for them and comfort and satisfaction at the expense of others, but they don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, but when God steps in, when God sees their hearts, He sees things as they really are. Unlike those people in Greece that were yelling at me to get back on the right side of the road, Isaiah is screaming out from God, not so that Israel might turn back, but so that they might know as they head down the road they are going, the destruction that faces them comes not from random chance, but from God. That God is in control of what's about to happen. You've turned your backs on the true and living God, and what's about to happen to you is what God says will happen to you, and it's not going to be pretty. Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. What will you do on the day of punishment, when devastation comes from far away? Who will you run to for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. God is saying to these people who've turned their backs on Him, you've got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. It's inevitable. You've turned your backs on me. Punishment will come. But not only will it come, four times in this section of the Bible, we hear this exact same phrase repeated. In all this, God's anger has not turned away. In other words, He's going to punish them, but that's not the end of His punishment. There's more to come. His hand is still raised to strike. You are so bad, you have gone so wrong, that you are going to continue to experience God's justice. They're about to get smashed, but even that won't be the end of it. God's judgment will not be extinguished. There is still more to come. It's not happy news for Israel, because they fail to recognize the state of their own hearts. They fail to recognize the wrong they've done to others, and the wrong they do towards God. And that God is the one that calls the shots, not them. That brings us to our third point tonight the problem of justice. See, we all love justice. Deep down in our hearts, we love it when justice is delivered. Like, I can't stand it when the bad guy gets away. I'm like, ah, I hate it. The bad guy should have been punished. I remember um, I just recently got my license. Uh, Not not recently, (laughs) but it was when recently. It would have been 20 years ago. Um, uh, So I got my license to be able to drive a car. That's true. Uh, I think it's true. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, my math's right? Yes, it is. I'm 38, minus 20. Done. There you go. Um, so, I just got my license. I, I, I've been driving for about a year. I'm driving along outside our local McDonald's. That's the place to be when you've got your license. You're driving along. Anyway, driving along in my car, and uh, I see out of McDonald's through the car park this guy bolting, like running really fast. I'm like, man, that guy's running quick. And as I kind of look over as I'm kind of coming up, I, I notice that he's about to cross the road. And he's going to try and run behind my car. He's trying to, you know how people pitch it to get it just right? And then I looked again, and there's three policemen following him, bolting after him. Now, my immediate reaction wasn't what you might do. I was like, as this guy's trying to get behind my car, I'm going to brake. So I braked really hard, and they whack into the back of my car. At that point, the police grabbed him, and I'm like, yes, (laughs) justice. And I drove on. I'm like, I've done my thing for today. 
We love justice, don't we? Until it's aimed at us. Until it's delivered for what we have done wrong. See, like Israel, none of us have treated God as God. Here's where God's word gets a little bit personal. As we we look at the ugliness of the way that they've acted, we've done the same. We've not placed God in his position of God over all of our lives. None of us let him totally call the shots of our lives like he ought to. We want to define our future. We want to define our hopes and dreams and what is good and right, rather than listen to him and, and his way. And while it seems okay to us, and as we compare ourselves to everyone else around us, we kind of think, well, we look all right. There's nothing massively wrong with this. When we get the outside perspective on the human heart, on your heart and mine, we find out that we are just as much looking down the barrel of God's justice as Israel. Listen to Paul in the letter of Romans, Romans 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The problem with justice is that you and I need to be brought to it. We need to answer for the way in which we have treated God. And friends, that's a scary thing. To face the true and living God who spoke and flung the stars into space, who created the world with a word, we need to come before Him and answer for the way that we've lived. And none of us has an answer that's good enough. None of us have treated Him rightly. Not you, not me, not Hitler, nor, uh, nor Mother Teresa. None of us have treated God as God. Just like Israel, on our own two feet, we have nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The problem is, for all of us, the majority of our lives has been spent in the second world, not the first. In evil not in good. If the message of Isaiah is that on their own, Israel are without hope, that they are hopeless, then it's the same message to us who've turned our backs on God, isn't it? On our own, based on what we have done and the justice of God, we are without hope. Justice is what ought to await us. It is what awaits us. And for Israel, that justice would be delivered through Assyria, the kingdom at the very top. Look at what God says in chapter 10, verse 6 of Isaiah. I will send Assyria against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, and to trample them down like clay in the streets. God speaks of Assyria here as the rod of his anger, a staff in his hand to bring about justice. And this is pretty full on, particularly considering this is what we ought to deserve as well, isn't it? And you notice here that that it's not a type of justice that's trying to restore Israel at this point. It's not saying, look, I just want to help Israel get a bit better. And so, you know, he's actually a punishment. He's saying, if you do the crime, you've got to do the time. That's what justice is. Getting what is right and just. 
And the problem with that is, none of us wants what is just and right for us. But that's where we need to see the bigger plan of God. The story that's bigger than us, our hope outside of us and our own desires and dreams. So the book of Isaiah is really a book about the plan of God. What God is doing throughout all human history. And Isaiah helps us to have a big view of God. To see God as as He really is. See, so often my view of God is just so small. He can seem so distant and kind of ethereal and as an addition to life. But Isaiah is showing us that this God has all of human history in His hands. It begs the question of us all here tonight, no matter what you think about God, how big is your view of God? How big is your picture of Him? The nations are in His hands. He uses them as He sees fit. Assyria is but a pawn on the table of history. Every single one of life's circumstances is in His control. He's using it all, bringing all of human history to the point He wants, in the way He wants. He is in control of everything. There is nothing outside of this God's control. Now, for many of us, that raises problems. It raises a challenge for us. See, how could God use the evil of Assyria to punish the evil of his own people? Doesn't that kind of seem wrong? Two wrongs don't make a right? And does that mean that God is using evil to bring about his plans and purposes? Does that make God evil if he's using the evil of others? How can God allow the atrocities that go on in this world? How could they be a part of his plan? And you start to see the problem, right? How could God let this stuff go on? What we see in chapter 10 is a concept that's littered throughout the whole Bible. That while God might use evil people who have evil plans to accomplish God's purpose, that never justifies the evil of those people. While God might use evil people to accomplish God's purpose, it never justifies the evil of those people. We're all responsible for our actions, however right or wrong they are, even if God uses them for good or as part of His plan. Look at me from verse 12 of chapter 10. For when the Lord finishes all His work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, when He's finished judging them and pouring out His punishment on them. He will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. For he said, I've done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures like a mighty warrior. I subjugated the inhabitants. My hand has reached out as if into a nest to seize the wealth of the nations like one gathering abandoned eggs. I gathered the whole earth. No wings fluttered, no beak opened or chirped. Wow. Sounds like humanity at times, doesn't it? Look at what I've done. Look at my success. It's gone well for me. Following this this God that you speak of, (laughs) how'd that treat you? It didn't go well for you, but life has gone well for me and I am happy. What God says next should scare us all. Look at verse 15. Doesn't axe exalt itself above the one who chops with it? Does a saw magnify itself above the one who soars with it? It will be like a rod waving the one who lifts it. It will be like a staff lifting the one who isn't wood. 
Therefore, the Lord God of armies will inflict an enunciating disease on the welfare of Assyria, and he will kindle a burning fire under its glory. Justice will come, and it will come to all. No one escapes the justice of this God. As we stand back and ask how the the horrific things that have happened over the many years of of life could happen, as, as as we think about how the horrors of the Holocaust could occur, the, the, the genocide of the Ukrainians in the 30s or, or the Cambodians in the 1970s where 10 to 33% of the population were killed or Rwanda in the 1990s where 70% of the Tutsis were killed, 20% of the total population wiped out or even to today where the Rohingya people of Myanmar are being exterminated or the extermination of a whole unborn generation. All those things are happening under our watch today. Are they part of God's plan? Absolutely. God is in control of everything. Is God using them to bring about His purpose and His end? Absolutely. He's always bringing all of human history to the point He wants it, which is good and right. But is God culpable for what people have done? Absolutely not. Each person, each evil, each rebellion against him will be called to justice. That's exactly what will happen or happens to the Assyrians. God says, I might use your evil, but it never excuses your evil. We might not know why he allows things to happen. And we ought to do all we can to stop the injustice of the world. I mean, after all, that's the problem with Israel at this point. They're not loving those around them. But we can know it's part of his plan. Recognizing the relationship between God's sovereign purpose, his all-controlling plans, recognizing the relationship between that, God's sovereign purpose, and our human responsibility, it's so important. So important. I think it helps us in three ways. Number one, it stops us from denying the reality of evil. See, we could look at the world and go, God's in control. That wasn't that bad. You're like, no, that was evil and wrong. And we we attribute that evil and wrong to people's evil and wrong actions. We we really do evil things. But secondly, recognizing God's sovereign purpose and our responsibility also stops us from the fear that evil will ultimately triumph. There will be justice in the end. God will bring all evildoers to justice and he will deliver it and it will be right. So we can stand trusting Him in that. But thirdly, it gives us a bigger view of God. He's in control. His plans and purposes are amazing. The fact He's orchestrating the universe and using even the wrongs of the people in this world that are turned against Him to bring about His plans and purposes. Wow. There is no one like Him. Have you seen how big this God is? Have you recognized that there is nothing, nothing in the entire universe, you and me included, that that is outside of His control? Well, despite Israel's rebellion, and only because of the goodness of God, God's plan will not finish in destruction for them all. We read about a day that is coming, a day named after Isaiah's first son. You might have 
remembered him last week. Many of you wrote down his name as child name names, uh, child ideas for your kids that you have in the future. Shir Jeshub, great name. That was his first son. A remnant will return. But have a look at chapter 10 and 20. On the day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob, they will no longer depend on the one who struck them, i.e. Assyria. But they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return. Sheer Jasab, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. The plan of God was always to provide a way for His justice and His mercy to meet. Justice is giving us what we deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. God had a plan to bring those two together. In fact, that plan is what all of human history is about. God bringing together both His justice and His mercy. And the point of us, the point of life is to recognize where we fit in that plan and focus our eyes on the crescendo of that plan. The solution to evil, both our evil and the world around us. And so, we get to chapter 11. Long intro, right? <laughs> chapter 11, verse 1. And feel the weight as people who are looking down the barrel of hell for rejecting our true and living God, for not living rightly for the evil that we have done. Feel the weight of these words. You ready? Then, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, not from the, the human point of view, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. In this shoot of Jesse, this, this stump of Jesse, this branch that will come, there is both the judgment of God and the mercy of God. He will judge the poor rightly and execute justice for the oppressed. And if you have eyes to see it, Chapter 11 is really hope for the hopeless. It's really a promise of one in this bigger plan, a plan that's going on right here and right now, this plan of human history that God is so ordering human history to bring forward this stump from the root of Jesse. Now, what is, it, what is this root of Jesse? Who is Jesse? Guy from Full House. Anyone ever watched Full House? No, okay, awkward. Well, Jesse was King David's father. <laughs> And really, why has he said the, the root of Jesse? Well, I think it's partly because people were waiting for this promised king that would come. A promised king from the line of David. It had been promised in, in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, have a look at that verse. This is a great verse to remember, write down, highlight. So helpful. When your time comes, David, and you rest with your fathers, I, God, will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house, a dynasty for my name. And I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. In other words, David, a son of yours, will come and rule your people and the world forever. And since that point on, people have been looking for David's son. But the problem is, every single one that's come at some point has been a dropkick, pretty much. 
it come along and they've done dodgy things. Ahaz, who was in Judah, was a descendant of David. And he's not living rightly. He's doing all sorts of dodgy stuff. And so perhaps here, God through Isaiah uses Jesse to say it's a new start. A new son that will come from David, but unlike the Davidic line, a totally new start that has a new picture of the way the world will work. One that will execute justice rightly and have mercy on the poor and the oppressed. And then there's this strand throughout the whole Bible, throughout all of human history, that we're waiting for the son of Jesse, for the shoot who will bear fruit and deal with the evil of the world around us. And then we get this picture in Isaiah 11 of what that world will look like when he comes back in his fullness and in his reign. What would a world that was right look like? What, what pictures come into your head? Well, Isaiah here uses picture language to show a, a wolf and a lamb together, a leopard and a goat, a calf and a lion. Now, it's not like a zoo where they're all in their little cages. This is where they're all happy and friendly. Ever seen a wolf being happy with a lamb? Yeah, but usually the lamb's not happy with a wolf. (laughs) This is this picture of the world in peace, no war, the leopard and the goat, the calf and the lion. Now, we were not supposed to go, now, who is the wolf and who is the lamb? Like, is that these people and is that that king? No, this is a picture of, of peace, of evil being dealt with finally and completely when this son of Jesse comes. And what he's doing is putting back a whole new created order. Not just of one little area of land, but a whole new world order. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. The land, literally the earth, will be as full of a knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Right, a sea that's not got water in it, it's not really a sea. It's, it's a, just a thing. <laughs> it's land, right? The earth will be as full of a knowledge of the Lord. As the sea is filled with water. Oh, how I long for that day. When God's plans and purposes are enacted fully and rightly. And evil is stopped. And his king is installed on his throne. This is not just a picture of a small bit of land in the ancient Near East called Israel. It's a picture of the whole earth. The whole world knowing God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 11. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner... For the people, the nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. This is a whole new world. This root of Jesse, this person in human history who would step onto the stage will change everything. That's what Isaiah is saying. That is the hope for the hopeless. Look at verse 15. And listen to the way, again, in picture language it's described. The Lord will divide the gulf of Suez. He'll wave his hand over the Euphrates with a mighty wind. And we'll split it into seven streams. And you're like, I've heard of God splitting water before somewhere. Of waving his hand with a wind. Letting the people walk through on foot. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will survive from Assyria. As there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Yes. Isaiah is saying, Israel, people of God, do you remember when God brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery? He called you to be his people. He took you from the the rain and the slavery to to Pharaoh and he brought you across the Red Sea on dry ground. He split the Red Sea and that became the defining moment for the people of God that you all look back to and go, yes, God saved us. He brought us out. He's saying, he's going to do it again. But not just like in a half-baked kind of Red Sea kind of way. He's going to make a highway through that river. (laughs) He's going to make a way for the people to come back to God. Better, truer, 
fuller. What happened in Egypt was just a shadow of what is to come. And how great this is when the root of Jesse appears. Friends, this is the story that's going the whole way through human history. If you have have ears to hear it, this is what is going on in our world, waiting for the day that the root of Jesse comes back. Now, the way that he'll bring that highway, uh, we don't hear about yet until Isaiah 53, so we'll get to it soon. But he will bring the wrath of God and the mercy of God together in the one person. And we know who that person is, if you're a Bible person, because the New Testament starts with these words, Matthew 1, verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Why does it start that way? Just because they're like, oh, you need to know who this dude is. No, because this is the son of David that's been promised in 2 Samuel 7. This is the root of Jesse, the new start. Matthew starts his gospel saying, here he is. As he steps onto the world stage, Jesus is this root of Jesse. And then right at the end of the New Testament, Revelation 21, I just want to show you, the whole arc of the Bible is all about him. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest to these things, to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Could he be any clearer? Both the Spirit and the bride say, come, come to the highway who is Jesus. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Whatever hopes and dreams and security and comfort you look forward to in life, God is showing us through Isaiah that we need to see life not from our own introspective view, but from what God is doing throughout human history. It's all about Jesus. The point of life, that's the last point that we'll look at for a little. The point of life, our purpose for being, our hope, our security is not found looking within ourselves. But seeing my life as part of God's great story. Seeing who I am from His perspective. For seeing that, it helps us to see that God's perspective, His plan, His purposes go far beyond whatever I could ever see or hope or imagine. I don't even know why half the things that are going on this week are going on, yet God is ordering the whole of humanity to bring people to the place where wrath and mercy meet in His Son, Jesus. His plan will happen, guaranteed. He is in control of it all. The question for us is, whose vision will you follow? Have you seen what God has showed us through Isaiah tonight? That without God, we are a people without hope. Have you seen that our future, given the way that we have treated God, is to receive justice and judgment, separation from God's goodness, hell? That is our future. That is what you and I deserve. Have you seen the shoot of hope, the root of Jesse, Jesus, the one who came to rule rightly and enact justice. The place where he took God's wrath on us. He he died in our place so that we might be forgiven. Have you seen Jesus as the place where wrath and mercy meet? Have you seen your place in the bigger and greater and truer plans and purposes of God? Friends, life is not about you. It's not about us and our hopes and our dreams 
We need to move on from short-sighted, self-serving mediocrity. We need to stop setting such pathetic goals and look to the wider plans and purposes of God where the whole of creation will be under His Son, Jesus. Where everything will be right, the lion and the lamb laying down together. No more mourning or crying or pain. Evil being dealt with and life that does not end. Oh, that is something to hope for. The sooner we realize God's plans and purposes and our place in them, the sooner we are released from our slavery to disappointment. For every hope we hold other than Jesus will not satisfy. We'll be left looking back at life going, I have nothing to look forward to. The things that I hoped in did not deliver. Friends, don't live your life for your next weekend. Don't live your life for your next holiday, your next adventure, your next relationship, your next big break, your next kind of career move. Live your life knowing you are part of something bigger. Live your life, Isaiah tells us, in praise of God and in proclamation of what he's done. That's what Isaiah 12 looks at. The last little section. It's the shortest um, whole chapter in Isaiah. Six verses. Isaiah 12.1 says this, and it is such a great picture. You ready for it? On that day, on the day that the root of Jesse comes in his full rule, which is kind of split into two for us. Jesus has come and died and risen again, but we're waiting for him to come back. But here it views that as one event. On that day, you will say, I will give thanks to you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust Him and not be afraid for the Lord. The Lord Himself is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Friends, as we look at what we have been rescued from, it only serves to heighten the greatness of our Rescuer. That Jesus died in our place, that He suffered the penalty that we deserve. That we have been saved. Oh, so many people say, don't, don't talk about our sin and our brokenness and how, how wrong we are because, you know, people just don't like to hear that. But, oh, if we remove how broken I am, then we remove the goodness of God and His grace and mercy shown to us. Recognizing our place in the overarching plan of God is recognizing the incredible relief and joy of knowing God's anger is no longer against us. And that results in praise of God and proclamation of who He is. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. On that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim His name. Make His works known among the people. Declare His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for He has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizens of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in His greatness. Have you seen what God has done for you and for me? And will you sing? Will you sing loudly to the world around us of the truth of who He is and what we've been rescued from? Will you stand up when the world around us says, oh, we don't, we don't want anything to do with this God and say, no, He is the true and living God. Will you live your life for His praise and glory, recognizing man, how amazing it is to be caught up in the plans and purposes of God? Isaiah is clear, when you are saved, you sing. Some things in life happen that are so great that words alone can't, can't kind of encapsulate it. And that's why God's given us songs about to sing out these 
realities of his plan and who he is. But do notice, this singing is not in order for me to experience God. No, we sing because we have experienced God. We've experienced God taking away his wrath from us. We don't do it to usher in some moment of presence where it's me and God in this moment of intimate nature in singing. No, no, no. We sing in response to what he's done. Oh, now that might be intimate. Yes. We do it as his people together, as people who deserve death and judgment and hell, but have been forgiven. We sing because we have been saved and we proclaim his name. When you recognize what we've been saved from, oh, you want to tell the world around us. It's like having the cure for cancer, but better. It's life that does not end. It's it's saying, stop living for such self-centered, short-minded goals and recognize what God is doing in the world around us. That is why we're here. That is what we exist to do, to make God's purpose known across the earth, to proclaim His name, the name of His Son, the Son of Jesse, Jesus and to point the world to who he is and where he is heading. Have you recognized the amazing privilege that it is to partner with God in his plans and purposes, to use our time and our money and our resources to see the knowledge of God reach the ends of the earth? Our colleagues, our friends, our family, without Jesus, every single one of them, like us without Jesus, would needlessly be going to hell. when you reflect on the radical nature of what we have been saved from, it calls for a radical response to the ones who've been caught up in His plans and purposes. We're not going to do that much in life that's amazing. The history books pretty much aren't going to write down, well, that day that Rowan did this thing, woo! You know, I'm not going to make it on the, on, the, on the top 20 most influential people of Time magazine, and probably none of us here will either. But for those who trust in the root of Jesse, those who put their life in his hands, you are caught up in the best story the world has ever seen. You will be standing in eternity. Your name will be written in the book of life. You'll be able to call God your father. You'll be able to call Jesus your brother. And eternity will be what we are living for, where God is praised as he ought to be, in right relationship with one another. No more evil or mourning or crying or pain. That is your future. So do not live for short-sighted, self-focused goals that are so driven from within that we miss what God is offering. Life through Jesus. How about we pray? Father God, as we go through this book of Isaiah, we get to see afresh and over and over how broken each of us really are. For we confess we are like Israel. We've turned our backs on you. We have not treated you as we ought. We have played God in our lives. For that we are sorry. We know we deserve death, judgment and hell. But we are so thankful for your son. In whom your justice has been delivered. But instead of being poured out on us, was poured out on him. We ask that tonight, by your spirit and through your word, you would fix our eyes on your plans and purposes, seen clearly and fully in your son. Help us to live for you, not because because we need to live for you to be saved, but because you have saved us. 
send us into your world in praise of who you are and in proclamation of your great and wondrous deeds. Lord, may you bring many, many more to know the salvation you have offered in your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. We're going to have a quick moment for questions. Hopefully a couple have come through. Um, Number one, how do I reconcile the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility for their actions? Um, great question. Thank you. This is, this is one of those old chestnut questions that we keep trying to think through. How can God be in control of everything and yet I still be responsible? Uh, that's the kind of common question. Like, if God's in control, isn't He responsible? Well, you kind of see um, two competing ideas both put forward as true. There's a fantastic book. I hope it's in our bookshop. probably is. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It is really, really helpful, and it's thin, which means it's even better. Thin books, that means the guy's got, it's written by Packer. Uh, Basically, he starts out by saying, um, there's two competing ideas, God being sovereign and us being responsible. How do you bring those two together? Well, it's like there's two authors to life. Uh, There's both fully God in control, and and we're still making decisions, and we make real decisions, and they both kind of sit together. and so, you can kind of, the best explanation I've had of this is kind of, it's flawed, but let me, let me roll it out for you quickly. Imagine I, as a sovereign father in my family, uh, want to have my kids eat fruit, but they don't want to eat fruit. They're like, we hate fruit, you know, we want chips. Okay, so they come home from school, and I want them to eat fruit for its goodness and health benefits. Um, they're hopeful for chips, <laughs> they might get them through. Um, but, so what I do is, I go, okay... They come home from school, and I'm like, hey, guys, eat some fruit. They're like, no, nah, we don't eat fruit. I'm like, cool, that's great. You just go and play. You got to have some fun. So they go off, and they're playing, and I just don't give them any other food. They're kind of playing for the afternoon for a while. They're getting a bit hungry. And we're, Dad, can we have something to eat? No, not yet. They're kind of, the afternoon's going on. And then, you know, just at the point where they're right on the edge, I kind of cut up a, a, a kind of plate of pear. Now I love pear. Pear's like, I think, the runway supermodel of fruit. But anyway plate of pear, and I go, hey guys, there's food out, they come running downstairs after playing, see a plate of food, and go, man, I'm in, and they eat the fruit. Now, did they choose to eat that fruit? Absolutely. It was on, I didn't force them to do it. But me, even in my humanness as a dad, could so order their world that it meant that they would eat the fruit. I think that's kind of what you see with God's um, re- uh, sovereignty and human responsibility. God is able to sow all of the world to bring about His plans and purposes, yet we still make real choices. If I can do that in my family, God can do that in the world around us. And so what you're seeing is people really making choices, but God being sovereign over all of that. Now, we kind of go, that still doesn't kind of fit together really neatly. And yeah, you'd expect God not to fit into all of our boxes. Uh, you'd expect Him to be over that. Um, but you see both operating together. Uh, so come and chat to me later if you want more on that, but you kind of see God in control yet we really do have responsibility. Okay, there you go. Second question, uh, is punishment by sending invasion something God still does? Um, So, yes. That's my quick answer. Um, uh, But does he do it in the same way? Did God speak to the king of Assyria and go, you should go and worship, you should go and take them out now? And they kind of went. No. No. Right? I, I take it was the king of Assyria's move to come down and wipe out these nations. At the end, he's like, no, I did this. Look at me. I, I'm, I'm so great. God so orders the world to bring about his plans and purposes. So as long as there's an invasion going on, is that part of God's plan? Yes. Should we seek to stop invasion? Yes. We should. 
We should love people because now Jesus has come and we've seen that the king is here and that his kingdom is not one of a political rule here and now, but a rule that will last for eternity. Then the way to see people move into his kingdom is not to bash out the other nations, but to see them come and trust in Christ. And so as we invite people to trust in the true and living God who will, who will rule after death and take us into the new heaven and new earth, then we're saying we don't need to invade the nations around us anymore. God's not about that in terms of Israel expanding. He's about people coming and trusting this root of Jesse. And so, yes, God still does enact justice um, in the world around us. He, he's in control of it all. But he doesn't send us to wipe out nations. He tells us uh, that our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities. It's actually a, against Satan to show that God has won through defeating death and defeating the effects of sin. Next question. How are you sure that this isn't about the restoration of a nation Israel? Uh, should we be looking for that to happen? 11 verse 14 sounds like a restoration of a national Israel as a successful plunderer of the nations. Yeah, that's, that's great. How am I sure that that's not the case? Um, well, you see throughout the rest of the Bible that they, they do get smashed and they, they don't ever get restored. Uh, now, what happens is Jesus rocks up on earth uh, Jesus walks the earth, uh, and basically he says stuff like, you know, the place of the temple was the place where Israel, Jerusalem, was supposed to run out from. And Jesus says stuff like, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. And he's not talking about the physical nature of that. He's saying, I am the place you meet with God. I will rise again in three days. So you're seeing Jesus as a fulfillment of Israel. It, it is about a restoration of the national Israel. Just one Israelite, and his name's Jesus. <laughs> And he is the one who lives rightly. And all those who trust in him are united to him. And they're, they're trusting. And so you see that this new Israel are those who trust in Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike. And so that's the big picture that the, the New Testament clarity gives us looking back, that it's actually pointing forward to him. Uh, and so are there kind of hopes? Were they probably hoping as they heard this part of Isaiah to be restored as a nation Israel? I think yes. But you see the clarity that comes as God points out that that was a mere shadow compared to the reality of now God the Son coming and ruling and taking us into a new heaven and a new earth and expanded Israel, not just this little bit of land, but the whole earth worshipping Him. Last question, uh, what does it mean to say that humanity is worthless when we still have an inherent worth by being a virtue created in God's image? Yep, what it's saying is that uh, there is nothing in and of ourselves that brings any worth to who we are that we don't treat God rightly. And at that point, there is nothing good we have to bring to the table. We can't say, oh, look at my good deeds and acts, because even the good things I do, if I'm in rebellion against God, are still uh, rebellion against Him. Uh, the best illustration I have of that is, um, imagine for a moment the best um, sailor you've ever seen. Imagine a sailor who's a brilliant sailor, like it's just amazing. He's probably a Kiwi because America's Cup, we're doing really well. So, you know, best sailor, awesome at navigating and working out when to tack and do the kind of, is it tack and yaw? Anyway, Andrew can correct me later. Um, and so, knows how to sail well, brilliant with all the crew on the deck. Everyone's like, that is the best sailor I've ever seen. Doesn't need kind of maps, can just look at the stars and kind of, you know, brilliant sailor, like off, off the charts. And if you kind of looked up close to that sailor, you think, man, they're a good sailor. But if the camera panned back and you saw that that ship was flying a pirate's flag. You see that all the good that sailor on the deck of that ship did was actually done in rebellion against the authorities that existed. 
So while it looked on the surface of the deck like he was doing good, he was doing it for the purpose of rebelling against the authorities. So the good we do. As we try to um, love our neighbor uh, and society tries to care for people and and feed the poor and and enact justice, we're doing good. But if we're not doing it to please God, we're effectively pirates. We're saying, I'm doing this for my own purposes rather than God's. And so even the good that we do is actually rebellion against God. No one seeks God. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who lives rightly for Him. There's no one who understands God. There's no one who seeks Him. All have turned away. And so what it's saying is, yes, we are created in God's image. But what, we, what is right and just is that we are destined for the trash heap because we've rejected the God who gives life. And that's the great question that we're left with. It's the great amazement that we have if we come to the root of Jesse, if we come to Jesus and trust in Him. Because those who deserve death have now been given worth far more than we ever could have hoped or imagined because we get to be called children of God because of what Jesus has done. And so the big picture is is not going like, oh, I'm not sure about that. It's going, do you trust Jesus? 